What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Protests in Iran continued over the weekend, sparked two weeks ago by the murder of 22-year-old Masa Amini, who was arrested by the Guidance Patrol, the religious morality police of Iran's government, for not quote-unquote, appropriately wearing the hijab. This weekend's protests were met with a brutal response, even more brutal response from the Revolutionary Guard who have promised even tougher crackdowns in response to people taking the street. We're joined today by Wendy DeSousa, adjunct professor of Iranian studies in the Middle East South Asia program at UC Davis, who teaches courses on women and gender in Iran. She is also author of the 2019 book, Unveiling Men, Modern Masculinities in 20th Century Iran. Good morning, Wendy. Good morning, Kat. Thanks so much for joining us. We're also joined by Curry Peterson-Smith, Michael Ratner, Middle East Fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies, where he researches U.S. empire, borders, and migration. Good morning, Curry. Good morning to both of you. Glad to have you on the new show. Curry, I want to start with you, and then, Wendy, feel free to jump in. Can you give us updates on the response of the Revolutionary Guards to the protests over the weekend and the promise of increased crackdown? Sure. Um, Well, we have to start by just acknowledging that this is a monumental uh, moment in Iranian history and really uh, for for any people in the world who are concerned with a freer uh, freer world and freer society. Uh, These these protests have been going on for weeks now, and there has been a number of efforts to uh, by by the state and its various kind of allied forces to quash the the uprisings uh, from of course the kind of brutal repression of the police and of um, the besiege the, the kind of paramilitary um, that that Iran uh, has to uh, for for purposes of political and social control mobilizing. Um, allies of the government to have their own kind of rallies and things like that. And none of these have actually stopped the the protests from continuing. So last week we saw the um, the kind of uh, commemorations 40 days after the killing of uh, Gina Amini, the, the um, young woman whose murder initially sparked the protests, as well as the killing of a uh, 16-year-old Nika Shakarami, who was another um, uh, person who, uh, protester, uh, one who really is so emblematic of of this whole uprising, a young woman uh, who was in the streets uh, with so many and who was killed and whose killing uh, led to her also becoming kind of a martyr to this this new uprising. Um, And so with 40 days since those killings, there were huge protests uh, despite incredible uh, repression. So the, the Iranian state has been deploying uh, more forces to, to try to um, push back the protest, but thus far they persist. Wendy, we're going to get into specifically um, the brutality against women and girls and also the, the fierce courage of women and girls at this time. But if you could mm-hmm. respond specifically to um, what you understand uh, occurred over this weekend. Yeah, well, definitely in the past couple of days, we're seeing more students organizing all over Iran and various uh, universities. Um, we're seeing uh, even actually, I think just yesterday, there was a, um, a, a sort of um, cafeteria demonstration in Banda Abbas, which is in southern Iran, where students actually tore down 
a separation uh, of gender segregation in the, the lunch cafeteria. And it was a, you know, quite a remarkable demonstration. Um, we're seeing that in other places as well, a demand to end gender segregation uh, in universities as well as uh, in the country at large. Um, we're also having commemorations. It's the 40th, anniversary, uh, sorry, 40th day uh, commemoration of those who have passed away, especially uh, beginning with Massa Amini, but then other protesters that have passed away due to state security forces and violence. Um, and we're, we're having, um, you know, many, many uh, funerals being held, um, being captured on video and then being, um, you know, basically uh, brought out and, and shown um, on various uh, outlets, especially BBC Persian has been covering all of this. So, um, you know, just and I, let me just say, you know, um, for families to be willing to have themselves video recorded at the most, you know, uh, I think the most tragic moment of their lives is is so indicative that everyone is banding together and everyone is showing that they do not want this government to exist anymore. Let's give some context, uh, Wendy, and, and talk about really what day-to-day gender apartheid in Iran looks like. Yes, well, um, you know, as you mentioned, the... Um, the group responsible for arresting Massa Amini um, is a very important part. It's a paramilitary force. It's called the uh, Gasha Ershad or the, you know, uh, guidance patrol. And they are sort of empowered to um, patrol various aspects of the public, um, going to, you know, places where people shop, uh, at airports. Um, and really their, their main preoccupation is with anyone that's showing any outward signs of, you know, personal expression that doesn't conform with the government's ideal of what a man should be, what a woman should be. Um, and so this particularly affects women. Um, if you talk to any Iranian woman, uh, they have stories to tell. They have stories to tell about being uh, detained. Um, by the, you know, security forces, um, sometimes arrested, you know, sometimes they are uh, brought to what are called re-education centers. Um, and all of this is, you know, what, what many of my Iranian friends and, and family, you know, mention is all of this is sort of as a, as a way to keep power. There's no real um, religious intention behind it. The, the intention is you know, to to use religion as a way of repressing the population. And so women have, you know, not only faced this, but also, you know, um, are denied equal opportunity. Um, even though Iranian women are 60% of the entering university student population, um, they are one-third less likely to get a job once they graduate. Um, Iranian women have basically excelled in every aspect of society, especially STEM, um, and yet um, they see their male colleagues being promoted before them. And so, um, you know, you could call the veil the, the, definitely the galvanizing point, but there are so many aspects of life in Iran for women that, you know, is, is the reason why they're, they're showing up in such great numbers. 
Wendy, you mentioned in uh, your response that, you know, many, many uh, Edani women have stories about engaging uh, with the morality police. You have your own story, yes, from um, being a member of the First American Exchange Program. Could you share that with us, please? Yeah, sure. Um, so I had the opportunity to go to Iran um, as a, a student of Iranian studies and study Persian in 1998, which was the time uh, of President Khatami. And um, that was my first experience watching um, the various, uh, you know, acquaintances, friends, um, the family I was staying with, how they had to constantly be in fear of uh, being stopped by the morality police, um, various other security forces, just trying to live their lives. Um, and so uh, I did have a, my own personal experience when I was traveling from um, Tehran, the capital, to Shiraz. Um, I didn't realize that I, I um, was supposed to be uh, wearing socks <laughs> and I was uh, detained and interrogated not wearing socks and I, I have to say I was also quite scared um, of that experience and I was um, you know definitely by, uh, by a female officer I was um, you know uh, physically touched uh, in intimate places and um, you know so I, I do I have a, an inkling let's just say and I, I, I think the more important thing is I've just witnessed so many times women showing resistance and that that part of the story is so important I think just showing that, you know, Iranian women have found ways, you know, somehow carved out spaces to be able to live their lives. At the same time, I think they, they where they say the Gen Z population um, who have not had any experience with the revolution, you know, that was their parents or grandparents generation, um, don't see any reason uh, to continue um, with the status quo and these types of, you know, repressive tactics that they've had to experience. Curry Peterson-Smith, Wendy talked about all sorts of people have banded together in this moment. Can you talk about why and how significant it is that men have joined women, um, the women of Iran, in demanding a move towards more equality and democracy? Sure. Well, you know, Wendy spoke um, just quite richly about how the experience of this kind of policing and repression is a near universal one by women. And it, it is the case that these protests, these uprisings really have been led by women, particularly young women, um, including you know, teenagers and even girls, you know, children. But it is also the case that there's been this outpouring of solidarity from, uh, fr from men. And, you know, as, as Wendy spoke to, there's a kind of it, the, the killing of, um, you know, Masa Gina Amini is this kind of spark. And... The, the, the claim, the charge of her um, being dressed improperly was a kind of lightning rod. But there are so many grievances um, for, for people uh, living in Iran today. And, of course, you know, there are particular grievances for, for women, given how um, the, the kind of repression that is um, that's geared toward them in particular. But there is a kind of widespread, um, I, think, I think it's evident, you know, from what now six weeks of, of revolt that there's a kind of widespread um, bitterness and, and outrage connected to so many things. And the fact that, that the demands uh, that people are raising in the streets have gone from um, ones that initially were focused on the, the morality police force that, that Wendy 
talked about to now more generalize, you know, opposition and kind of um, rejection of the whole, the, the whole of, of the, the, the Iranian state. That really speaks to the, the kind of a widespread bitterness. And so we're seeing a mobilization of men in solidarity with women. It's also worth noting, you know, I'm sure we'll get into it more, but the fact that the significance of um, Masa Gina Amini being a Kurdish woman and the fact that there is not only spe- special repression for women in Iran, but repression targeting Kurds and other uh, ethnic and, and, and religious minorities uh, in Iran, and the fact that the movement as a whole has has mobilized and taken up Kurdish slogans and, and, and really um, uh, in, in solidarity with Kurdish uh, people. So it's 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 this revolt, kind of first and foremost, against the the really misogynistic, um, you know, kind of daily uh, repression in the country, and yet it is so connected to uh, various grievances, and it's such an incredible example of, of solidarity, solidarity of of men um, with women, solidarity of uh, people who are not Kurdish with Kurds, uh, and so on. If I may, Kat, I I would add Mm -hmm. to that, um, you know, that we've had precursors to this movement. And, um, you know, going back to 1979, right, there was a a women's demonstration on, I believe, March 8th, 1979, um, really resisting the turn to, you know, the type of gender apartheid that we've seen over the past 43 years. But also more recently, you know, we talked about 2009. I remember it very vividly, you know especially in the capital, Tehran, there were millions of people actually really supporting reform and asking, where is my vote? Um, You know, based on uh, the suspicion um, that, you know, the elections were rigged. Um, Also, 2019, there were mass demonstrations based on a, you know, hike in fuel prices and the belief of, you know, government corruption where 1,500 protesters were killed. And then, you know, more recently, um, you know, and there's a documentary on this that just was um, uh, produced. But uh, there, there was a mass demonstration in in, the, in early 2020 um, that talked about the downing of PS752 uh, by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, and 176 people, as you know, died on that flight, um, and it was denied for three days by the government um, mm-hmm. until uh, the UN actually did an investigation and then condemned um, the Iranian government for its, you know, its actions and, and uh, actually lack of transparency. Um, and so, you know, there have been these moments and, you know, the government has been so effective in putting them down, but people remember, you know, the memory is there. And I think especially right before Massa Amini was uh, uh, arrested, there was also a woman by the name of Sepi de Rashno, um, who was forced, who was arrested for what they call bad bailing or bad hijab, and she was forced to give a false confession on TV. And um, that was really also a moment where people began to realize the Iraqi government, um, you know, is very much intent on uh, showing that it's, you know, more hardline you know, than anyone else. And Raisi uh, himself ran on a, uh, on a platform of, I'm going to clean up social corruption. Uh, and so he really stepped up these kind of, you know, repressive measures in the streets. And I think, you know, people had a breaking point. And, and that's what we're seeing right now.
Thank you for that, Wendy. And actually, both of your answers are a good segue to something I was going to talk about at the end. But but let's let's go here now. Kurt, can can you put into context, you know, what you were just saying about the Kurdish people and how significant it is, right, that Kurdish slogans are being uplifted and what the opportunities here are, right? Like the repression is horrific and the loss of life is is horrid. Um, but should the folks stay in the streets, should the women keep pushing, what are the opportunities you see here for significant shifts in Iran? And then, Wendy, um, we'll turn to you with that same question, if you want to be thinking about that while Curry's talking. Yeah, it's such, it's, such, um, it's such an exciting question because what has been happening in Iran has been so inspiring. I mean, it's, it's worth just a word on um, the Kurdish people. This is a group of people whose... Who's, um, kind of historic region, Kurdistan, um, extends across several uh, modern day states, nation states in the Middle East, uh, whose borders were essentially, as with so many groups of people all around the world, the borders were drawn right across their communities, right across uh, their kind of national home or ethnic home. And, uh, and therefore, Kurdish people have been marginalized, have been brutalized uh, as people who are stateless and um, otherwise, you know, in ethnic minorities um, and just otherwise uh, marginalized peoples in in, in various states um, uh, in in the region, uh, from from Turkey to Iran. Um, and and so there has been. Uh, it, it must be said too that as as brutal as repression against Kurdish people in Turkey and in Syria and in Iraq has been, um, there is a um, particular kind of brutality, I think, that, that, that has been dealt to them by the Iranian state. There's a really um, excellent book, actually, that I'm, that I'm reading right now uh, by Dilar Dirik called The Kurdish Women's Movement, History, Theory, and Practice. It's kind of recently published book on, on the, the Kurdish women's struggle. And she begins the, the book with a note by saying that this book is informed by um, scholarship of the, the Kurdish women's struggle in Syria, in Turkey, um, in Iraq. Um, but actually, it was so difficult to do research on the struggle in Iran because of the, the repression there. So we're talking about tremendous repression, um, but also a proud struggle that has been resisting for, for a very long time. Um, and it must be said, a struggle that has been um, quite isolated from Iranian society uh, as a whole because of the incredible repression of the government. In fact, you can just even see in these several weeks of the, the protests, as brutal as the government has been across Iran, they have been reserving a special kind of brutality for the Kurdish areas and for um, where uh, Gina Masamini came from. And so the fact that the movement at large has taken up uh, what would have been longtime slogans of the Kurdish freedom struggle, the Kurdish women's struggle, uh, um, uh, is really profound. It really represents something very significant historically. Um, and, you know, in terms of the kind of promise the potential, uh, the possibility that, that your, your, your question um, asks about. I mean, I think, that, I think that it's safe to say that what the movement has done so far has defied many expectations. I mean, everybody I know um, 
uh, you know, here in, in North America. Um, and people who, who have friends in Iran say that this about folks in Iran, too, that these protests have gone well beyond um, what everybody uh, expected. Um, and it's really opened up something massive. So, you know, you, you began the, the, our conversation by asking about the repression over the weekend. And, and it, it is the case that people are, you know, officials from the Revolutionary Guards said these protests are over. These will be the last day of the protests. And yet they persist. You know, despite the incredible repression, these protests just keep on going. And it speaks to something very deep that has been uh, awakened. Thank you, Curry. Wendy, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, Yeah, Curry, that was wonderful. And I I would just only add, you know, as I'm listening to so many voices um, in the Iranian-American community and the Iranian diaspora, I, I just think this is, this is what we call a thousand cracks in the edifice. I think this is the mm. beginning of the end. And um, what was really, for me, very instructive was uh, there's a, a panel discussion about what, was hap- what, what is happening in Iran. Um, and a woman who studies uh, civil disobedience um, and actually looked at 1979, the Islamic Revolution, had a really interesting observation in which she was saying, you know, the way that you bring down uh, any kind of authoritarian repressive regime is through map organized non-cooperation, you know, what we call civil disobedience. Mm. But what she said is it's the go slow tactics that topple dictatorships. And another thing she said is, you know, and, and I think this is really important because when people say, well, the government doesn't look like it's changing and what is the government doing and they're still cracking down. But she says, that's not really what we need to be looking at. She says, that's actually what happens last. She says, Mm -hmm. don't focus on the security pillars. Rather, um, look at the changes in loyalty, the loyalty shifts, defections, you know, members of the government applying for visas. We know that they're applying for visas to get their families out of the country. Um, You know, look at mass mobilization. Those are the things where you start to see slowly the drain and the defection. Um, and I think this is happening right now. And, and if, if there were a positive sign, you know, that would be it. I'm, I am going to do a little bit, though, Wendy, of, okay, then what happens? Um, it, 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 in part, because I want to talk a little bit about the United States um, and and what it looks like, right, to forge a path towards democracy when you've got the United States government, who's meddling in Iranian affairs, has been less than helpful and is going to have a vested interest in whatever the pathway forward is. Is that a clear enough question? Because it wasn't fully formed in my head. Yes, and, a, and a definitely um, a complicated one. <laughs> um, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, the U.S. as you know, as our, I'm sure your KPFA listeners also know, I've been listening to this radio program since I was a child. Um, I mm-hmm. definitely think that the U.S.'s role can be useful to the protesters. Um, you know, there is a perhaps a good type of meddling and a bad type of meddling. A bad type of meddling is what we have done historically up until now. Maybe the good type of meddling, what, what protesters are actually asking for is for us to, you know, really use our role in the United Nations, uh, you know, put together. This is a sort of what can we do. Um, question, but I, I think we can, you know, actually have documentation collecting evidence um, on human rights abuses that are happening right now. Um, sort of the world is watching, you know, putting pressure on, uh, you know, various world governments to, you know, uh, document, watch what is happening. 
Um, you know, people are talking about targeted sanctions. This is definitely not my area of expertise, but, you know, some kind of sanctions that uh, affect only, you know, the top echelons of government, such as uh, freezing assets of the, you know, Revolutionary Guards, um, prohibiting their families from, you know, traveling abroad, uh, such as travel bans. Um, and then, you know, there, there are the role of ordinary people, such as your listeners, to amplify the voices of, you know, Iranians, um, you know, who are protesting right now, um, keep it circulating in the media. Uh, you know, many Iranians say, say their name, you know, say the name, keep the memory alive of Gina Amini, Mahsa, you know, uh, Nika, Hadith, all these different young women, you know, who have uh, been, you know, shown in the media who have lost their lives just simply using their voice. And, um, you know, I, I know we can get into more historically about the, the U.S.'s role in Iran in particular, um, but I think now people are saying it doesn't really matter the, what, what happened in the past. And I think this is why now there's a new discussion of, you know, what can we do that would positively support the protesters, not interfere, and not push a sort of agenda that uses this movement for our own political gain. So I think those are the sensibilities and, and some of the, the action points that are being uh, discussed right now. And Curry, you know I want to throw this, this question to you. Um, t- talk about good U.S. meddling versus maybe not so good U.S. meddling and, w- and what the path for it is with, you know, the, y- the United States definitely have an opinion of what should happen next. And, and Curry, actually, I want to add one more layer to that, right? As I look at what Biden is saying, right, he's he's using this moment to talk about the nuclear deal. He's using this moment to talk about um, the more sanctions and not necessarily targeted sanctions in the way that Wendy was just discussing. Right. Yeah, let me let me say a word about meddling. <laughs> and, and, um, and then, <laughs> I knew you would. <laughs> you know, right? I've got, I've got a few words, but I'll just say a word, um, and and then and then say say you know just add on to what Wendy was saying about you know what can be done here um, at this moment. Um, it, so, you know, I think that the the the, the place to start, and um, it's true that the listeners to this program and this radio station will know this that. There, there's this, there's something, um, I think, um, well, let's put it this way. You know, most of the, the media in the U.S. are actually not like KPFA. Um, and so they kind of, they kind of cover yeah. this, um, they cover events in the world like this uprising in Iran and the U.S. response to it as though the U.S. is this sort of bystander who just kind of finds itself in a situation where there's this thing happening in another country that the U.S. has no relationship to and is like, well, I guess we should Mm. think about what we should say or do here. And it's like the U.S. has been intimately involved in the affairs (laughs) and the political and social and economic affairs of Iran for many decades. I mean, generations of Iranians um, experience in Iran and and in the diaspora have been shaped by U.S. policy. So it's not as though, you know, Biden and the U.S. are sort of arriving at this moment of encounter where it's like, oh, wow, there's this thing happening. I guess we should, you know, say something about it. So, you know, that's the, the first thing is I, I do think that it's because because it's it's you know I what Wendy said is absolutely true. The people in the streets at the moment, you know, are talking about um, are talking about injustices committed by the Iranian state. You know, I mean, these aren't protests 
Um, you know, it's not the case that people are raising slogans or banners, you know, a, a, against the United States. Their, the, their grievances are with their incredibly repressive government. And it is also the case that many people, many Iranians in Iran and, and, and outside of Iran have, um, as a kind of given, a background knowledge of uh, the, the role that the U.S. has played in shaping Iranian history in the 20th and 21st centuries that many Americans do not have. So I think that it's important for us to, to kind of um, uh, d- d- develop that knowledge. Now, that said, what can be done right now? There's so many things that are really quite simple for the U.S. government to do that would go that would be tremendous for people in Iran. One is, you know, one of the key uh, sort of demands that people are raising in the streets is free the Internet. I mean, it's part of um, part of the the repression and, and the isolation of Iranians is the way that the well, well, one is there's a way that the government uses, you know, kind of controls the Internet there and they can um, shut it down and impose all kinds of restrictions, which, of course, limits Iranians access to um, uh, information and to the Internet, you know, the kind of global Internet, uh, but also prevents Iranians in Iran from sharing what is happening in Iran. Right. Um, so there's the government's kind of repression about that. But it, it is also the case that the U.S. sanctions regime, which has made it's, it's it, it just it, it makes doing any business with the Iranian economy kind of toxic. And it means that tech companies yeah. um are not, you know, tech companies don't do business with Iran. And that has a profound impact actually on um, the level of integration that Iranians, you know, who live in Iran can enjoy with the rest of the world. And so actually if the U.S., like, like I think that it would be in line with the demand in the streets of freeing the internet. I mean, there, there's, there's, you know, obviously the, the Iranian government must, you know, there are demands placed on the Iranian government for, for, for its part in repressing the Internet. But actually, if the U.S., you know, reversed its sanctions regime, that could help free the Internet. And in fact, it must be said, actually, that a few weeks ago, you know, due to long campaigning um, uh, for, for precisely uh, to address these problems, the Biden administration did finally um, issue some guidances that um, uh, regarding sanctions that, that gave a little more space in terms of um, Iranians' access to, uh, to tech abroad. So that's, that's one thing. The other thing that I'll just put on the table is the question of Iranians' freedom of movement and in particular their right to enter the United States because, um, you know, as we know, Iranians were one of the um, groups of people singled out under the Muslim ban um, uh, under Trump. And there remain all kinds of restrictions on Iranians and their right to enter the country. I I, I know Iranian folks who are students. They are are currently matriculated students at institutions in the United States who are stuck in Iran because the United States has not renewed their student visas. Um, which which they are subject to restrictions that other international students are not. They are required to renew their visas more frequently than other international students. And so I know, you know, I have friends who did not plan on being in the streets. They planned on being here in the United States on campus Mm. doing their studies and they are stuck and they are terrified um, because they are subject to the kind of repression that all people all across the country are subject to, but it is also the case that they are students at American institutions. How e- how vulnerable are they? How easy is it to be accused of being a spy and so on? Well, that's that's really on the U.S. for denying their visas. So a very simple thing that the U.S. could do 
Um, and I should say, they, they don't deny their reasons, but they, they make the process so slow, so arduous that it, it becomes impossible. They, Iranians have to jump through hoops that other folks don't. So the U.S. could overnight <laughs> uh, uh, change that, um, uh, and that would be a, a huge thing. Wendy, I heard you co-signing some stuff there. Do you want to, to add anything here? I think I think Curry did a great job, and I, I would just mention, you know, these protests are certainly not about the economy, first and foremost, and, and I think uh, many protesters uh, really are adamant that people get the message this is about civil rights. Um, at the same time, I think what Curry mentioned, you know, U.S. policy can really hurt and harm, and that's what we've been doing with our, you know, U.S. unilateral sanctions, especially after 2018. Um, and, and our sanctions are not targeted. You know, they, they have caused the uh, Iranian currency to plummet. And that has affected so many people and their families. Um, and so I, I feel like going forward, you know, again, to this question of what can we do, you know, let's really think about how our policies can help people directly, you know, in this pro-democracy movement, in this women's rights movement, um, and, and really not harm people you know, which is what we've done, you know, by denying them, for example, you know, um, medications, you know, uh, diabetes medications or, you know, airplane parts to have safe airplanes in Iran um, because of our sanctions or, you know, vaccine infrastructure that really prevented, you know, uh, people from being able to administer um, the, the vaccines during COVID. And, you know, these are things that are preventable and we can easily do that. Curry Peterson Smith, this is a big question, but you started it. Um, I do think that context is important and quick highlight, right? You said you said it is important to, to get the information out there about how United States policies and practice have, have shaped um the, the political context of Iran, you know, in the twentieth and twenty first century. Quick quick hits from our listeners. What do folks need to know? Sure. I mean, it's really important for folks to know that the U.S. played a central role in the 1953 uh, coup against um, Mohammad Mossadegh, an um, Iranian nationalist who um, was, or, or say a progressive Iranian nationalist who um, was, who came into office um, on a wave of, um, of, Iranian nationalism that said that Iranian oil, which had been controlled by um, uh, English and, and American companies uh, for for years prior, said, "Well, actually, what if this what if this resource belonged to Iranians?" And that, of course, was a um, was seen as a transgression by the U.S. And so there was a coup that overthrew that government, that democratically elected government that the United States played a central role in. I mean, people people will will know that the CIA. Um, uh, you know, carried out all sorts of coups and, and, and meddling um, in the 20th century. Iran was really uh, an early um, an early experiment in that horrific history. So there was that. There was um, backing a, a dictatorship that then was in power um, until the Iran Revolution in 1979, um, which included, um, it, you know, not only incredible repression um, armed and backed by the United States, but also the presence of uh, U.S. Um, uh, uh, agents uh, in, in Iran as well. Um, there, after the revolution, there was a horrific war um, between Iran and Iraq. And at, the, at that time, uh, Iraq, the Iraqi government was an ally of the United States, um, you know, the same government that would be kind of attacked and invaded and overthrown uh, years later, was an ally of the United States. 
to, and uh, so the U.S. backed it um, uh, in just an incredible level of violence um, that that affected um, Iranians in in quite a traumatic way. Um, the U.S. Uh, played a direct role in that uh, war, including um, uh, shooting down an Iranian passenger um, uh, airliner uh, during during the war. Um, and then, of course, there was the sanctions regime, um, which, as Wendy spoke to, has not been targeted, you know, but has been um, broad and has uh, affected the Iranian economy and Iranian society um, incredibly broadly. It has done it has done what what um, economic sanctions do, which is they uh, harm the most vulnerable people um, in, in a society. And in this case, it's been brought tremendous harm for Iranians. And so, you know, when you talk about some of the, the kind of recent, just in recent years, there have been, um, Iranian society has been quite restive um, uh, against, um, it's against the government. Um, and uh, a huge part of that, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's absolutely right to, to point to, as Wendy did, that these current protests, the grievances really are targeting the political repression um, and the kind of social repression uh, of, of the state. Uh, and yet, you know, the kind of um, the, the economic situation, the healthcare situation, you know, a, a real um, just bleeding of Iranian society has, has, has happened over many years. That is, it's part of this context and the U.S. has played uh, a key role in all of that. Wendy, anything you want to add there? I think that was perfect. All right, we've got a few minutes left, and I I want to talk a bit and uh, about what's happening to journalists there. And um, I'd like to start with the two women journalists um, that broke the, the 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 news about Masa Amini's um, death, Nila Farhamidi and Alahi Mo. Hamadi, um, who have been arrested and are imprisoned are and are being accused of being agents yeah. for the CIA. What does that mean for them? Um, and if you then could connect that to the broader persecution and repression of journalists in Iran. Okay, yeah. Um, so thank you so much for, for mentioning Nilufar uh, Hamadi and Elahi Mohamedi because um, to be a journalist in Iran is to be in a fraud profession. Um, and in, in fact, it's probably the most fraught, um, in addition to uh, human rights lawyers and, um, you know, academics. Um, so just by breaking the story, um, Nila Farhamidi, Elahi Mohamedi, they were arrested and put in prison. Um, and the, of course, the accusation is, is sort of, you know, I think it's called spreading corruption. Um, but, you know, they were able to capture the moment when Masa Amini was, you know, dying and also uh, capture the moment when her parents were embracing each other um, in grief. And those, you know, obviously those images were so important in, in bringing people out into the streets and, um, and the government knows that very well. And so, um, yeah, I really hope that, um, the, the community, the journalist community around the world, all different you know, news outlets can really call for, for their release and, and bring more attention to, um, to their, you know, their plight at the same time. What's so interesting is that Iranians have taken it upon themselves to be citizen journalists. All the news that we're getting, you know, are from people's 
phones, uh, you know, a lot of shaky footage, right? Um, but, you know, people are risking their lives to take videos. If you take a video, you can be arrested. And yet, you know, look at the outpouring of uh, videos and commentary coming out of Iran. So, um, you know, people have moved into the vacuum where journalists usually occupy, you know, to, to be the voice, be the eyes for the whole international community to witness what's going on. Curry. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I you know, I think that Wendy, Wendy um, said it all. And just to say, I guess, you know, what I would add is that the, I mean, journalists have been under attack for so long, but the charging of these two journalists with, you know, crimes of treason, essentially, that is part of the kind of wave of um, of more repression that the the um, the Revolutionary Guard is is bringing. So it, it just it, it goes to show um, just how significant the profession of journalism is and, and how um, in so many ways, just just how essential it is to the, the kind of role in social change in general in Iran kind of in this moment um, and, and, and what that means for these really, really fearless journalists. And um, uh, as Wendy said, the, the kind of citizen journalists uh, as well who are, who are taking this footage that is getting out of the country. Um, talk about impact on the rest of the region, Curry. Yeah, this is a great question. And truthfully... Oh, well, let, let me say this, you know, one of the, the tragedies, I, I mean, I should say that Iran has has this really incredibly proud um, history and kind of contemporary, um, very recent history of, of this, this incredible resistance, whether um, of women or in the labor movement, you know, of, of uh, the Kurdish struggle in Iran and so on. And one of the tragedies is that it's been quite isolated. I mean, I think about, for example, the the 2009 wave of protests that that Wendy spoke to, um, which was this kind of incredible um, outpouring uh, for democratic rights in Iran, was brutally repressed, largely isolated, largely did not enjoy um, the support of people in the region. And then the kind of irony is two years later in 2011, most of the reason region rose up actually what was called the Arab Spring. So it's really tragic that struggles that I think have a lot in common have been kind of out of sync. And um, I will say that there has been a, a very unfortunate, you know, kind of kind of predictable but unfortunate effort to isolate the protests in Iran, uh, in particular by casting them as protests not against the Iranian state but against Islam, against the religion, um, uh, which I think has made for. People, you know, for for um, many Muslim folks, uh, including folks in the region, to kind of be hesitant about sympathizing with or identifying with the protests, and and then it must be said that there's just a tremendous amount of of sectarian division, in particular, that is that is, you know, the U.S. allies play a key role in driving, like Saudi Arabia and others, uh, but that kind of uh, present the notion that what what happens in Iran is irrelevant, and that's a you know a, a different you know a different society um, altogether. So I think it, it it remains to be seen uh, what kind of solidarity can be built. That said, you know uh, it, there is the kind of just humanity and the I don't know profoundly liberatory nature of what all is happening in Iran. I think is breaking through globally. You know, particularly as the the struggles 
persist for weeks and weeks and weeks. So I think we we shall see. It remains to be seen exactly how it will land. Uh, but the last thing I'll just say is that there are states that have um, particular kind of relationships to uh, Iran, like I think about Lebanese society, for example, where there has been a kind of uh, reverberation and, 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 and sympathy uh, with, with what all is happening in Iran. All right, Kerr, I've got to leave it there. Thank you both so much for joining us this morning. We've been speaking to Winnie DeSosa, adjunct professor of Iranian studies in the Middle East South Asia program, UC Davis, and Curry Peterson Smith, Michael Ratner Middle East Fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Rask and the Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. You all we got, fam. <laughs> 